You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab one and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and excited uh, to do so. Excited to be back this week with you. Uh, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black hardcover Bibles and turn to page 6 and follow along with us as we continue in our series uh, through the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Creation to Restoration. If you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say, uh, not what I have to say. We, we call this uh, preaching because the Bible has something to say. As we come uh, to this story, this chapter in the book of Genesis, it's important for us to understand that very title, Creation to Restoration. Just a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw how good God's creation was. We saw how beautiful and magnificent it was from the stars to the the flowers on the earth, and even to God's creation of humanity, that we are made in His image, that we are made male and female and called to have dominion over the world. We're called to cultivate and to keep. We're called to be priests before the Lord, to worship Him in His temple, that is, this planet. But we know that in Genesis chapter 3, we decided to rebel against God. Whether we wanted to be like Him in some way or we thought that we knew better, Eve ate of the tree that she was commanded not to eat. And Adam passively let her do so and willfully sinned. In that moment, sin was brought into the world. Sin now reigns on the earth when we get to Genesis chapter 6. So much so that we see in Genesis chapter 4 that sin harbors hate in a brother's heart. And it culminates in him murdering his brother. And then we see sin spread even more in the line of Cain. And Cain's line, you see it, it culminates in violence and vengeance. Sin is destructive. But there's this little note, this beautiful genealogy which we were in last week that God would be faithful to his promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that he will protect the line of Eve that there will be a son there will be a seed that comes from this line to crush the head of the serpent and in Genesis chapter 5 we see the beauty of God's promise The power of God's ability to sustain a world in which sin is ravaging it. That's where we pick up today. Where we come to Genesis chapter 6. And here's what we're going to see this morning. As humanity multiplied on the earth, so did their wickedness. Therefore, God must save His creation through judgment. It's important that we understand that 
Here in chapter 6, we're going to see a theme throughout the Bible. It sets up a standard for what, how the Bible is going to talk about salvation. God will judge sin, but God will also save His people. And God will provide salvation through judgment. Which brings us, if, if you are a disciple today, what should you know? How should you live? Wickedness earns God's judgment. We can experience salvation through grace, which enables righteousness. Wickedness earns God's judgment, but grace enables righteousness. And we can experience this. We experience through, through a life-giving covenant that God has made with us. And this morning, God will make a covenant with Noah. We have a better covenant. One with Jesus Christ. And in that life-giving covenant, it's life-giving in two ways. Right? Christ gave His life for us. And in the other way, we might receive life for all of eternity. And so we now, as we step into Genesis chapter 6, we're waiting for this seed in the story, but we know that this seed is Christ, that we now can be redeemed and restored. As I told you, chapter 5 is a, is a glimmer of hope. Even in a genealogy that, that we might want to skip over. A hope that the curse may be broken by a child of Eve. That Noah's father may say the curse of the ground may be undone. We may experience relief from this curse in the person Noah. And the genealogy ends. And it leads us now to Genesis chapter 6. And so as we walk through the story, I want, I want you to see two takeaways. Two takeaways. That God is going to evaluate the situation. He's going to respond accordingly. So we're going to see God. God sees the wickedness of creation. And God sets His grace on Noah. God sees the wickedness of creation. And God sets His grace on Noah. So... Number one, God sees the wickedness of creation. Now, it's important for us to understand the bridge between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Well, what happens in the book of Genesis is it shows us that in this line of the woman, we get a genealogy, and now the, what's going to happen, Moses zooms in on that line, particularly on Noah. And it's going to give us a pattern. It's going to happen with Noah. It's going to happen with Abraham. It's going to happen with David. The Bible zooms in on God's people. And so now, before we get to the destruction of the world, there's a, a bridge passage at the start of chapter 6. And it helps us set up the story of Noah. And what we see here is that God limits the spread of sin. God's going to limit the spread of sin. Look at verse 1. Notice how corrupt creation is. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, right? it's a natural outworking that children would be born, daughters would uh, be given, not just sons. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Notice that the sons of God here mirror the actions of Eve. They see and they take. Verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth. 
both in those days and afterward. And when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were powerful men of old, the famous men. God sees sin and He sets the limit for sin. Now these legendary men, these Nephilim, were included in this response. They're, they're, they're talked about in other places. could be giants. They're under God's sovereignty. They're not going to be left out. They know that they are under God's control. Moses demythalizes them. All of humanity falls under, under the judgment of God. And notice very quickly God's response to the situation in verse 3. God says that His Spirit will not remain with mankind forever. Why? Because they are corrupt. This word corrupt is going to be all throughout our chapter this morning. And it's repeated. But on the face of it, it doesn't, like, why are they so corrupt? If this is the, the example, what's really going on? It doesn't seem like it's so bad. So let's come back to the question, why are they so corrupt? Let's look at the people in the story. Look at, look at the people involved. Who are these sons of God? It seems that there are three potential options for this. Now let me be very clear. This is one of the most debated passages, uh, phrases in the Old Testament. We're not exactly clear on who they are. There's three potential interpretations. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two. The first would be that these sons of God are angels. Really, they're demons that have been cast down to the earth. Ezekiel talks about Satan and his demons being cast down. So, this would be demons, messengers of, formerly messengers of God, who now sin and corrupt even further God's creation. Secondly, though, they're possible that these sons of God are faithful worshipers in the line of Seth. E either one of these could be true, and, and it would make sense that it would be these sons of Seth because God tells Israel not to intermarry with other nations. Don't, don't marry with unfaithful people. God, God forbade Israel to marry the pagan nation, so it would make sense. And, and I'm not sure we can have a definitive answer. To be honest, Pastor Ryan and I were talking this week about uh, this very passage, I probably lean toward these being uh, angels, being demons. Uh, that's probably the, the direction I lean because it's an abomination before the Lord. Either way, though, what you see here is whether it was God's people who were marrying and seeing some destructive patterns or it was a demonic action. Either way, this is a corrupt situation. God is going to respond to these. The point of this is you can see that this is wicked and that wickedness earns God's judgment. The consequences of what has taken place now is that God's going to remove His Spirit from mankind. It will no longer be with His people. And when we see David in Psalm 51, what Paul just quoted to you, David asked, Lord, do not take Your Spirit from me. That is a devastating response that God would have to send. And so, God says, I'm going to remove my spirit and there will only be 120 years left. Now, this is the, the time that God will respond. This isn't a lifespan uh, for humanity. It's how long God's going to wait before He responds uh, to the situation. In the midst of this horrific sin, this horrific uh, corruption, God's grace once again shines through. That He gives people 120 years to respond. 
And the world experiences that kind of grace today. The world will experience the judgment of God when Christ returns. But it will not always be that way. Right? We wait until that day. And so the world, God is asking us to proclaim to the world, you have a chance to respond to God's grace. God sees the wickedness of creation and therefore God limits the spread of sin. So God sees the, the corruption of wickedness on the earth and therefore God also laments the spread of sin. Look at verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that He had made man on earth. And he was deeply grieved. And the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. The Lord gives his evaluation of the situation. Wickedness is widespread. The human mind is nothing but evil all the time. What a sobering statement that the Lord makes. It shouldn't surprise us, though. It shouldn't shock us. This is the Bible's description of humanity throughout its entirety. The problem with the world is that we are sinful to our core. Church, let me be very clear. The problem is not out there. It's, it's not people outside of us. It's not institutions outside of us. It's, it's not the situations that we walk into. The problem with the world is that we are sinful. And so when we come to God's word, it speaks to that sinfulness, but provides a solution. And although that may be offensive to the world and offensive to us, it should, it should cause us to respond. God is still working. But the problem is not out there. The problem is inside of us. And the Lord's response to this to this extreme sinfulness is it breaks his heart it causes him pain we've already seen sin bring sorrow to to humanity when eve lost her son because of cain's hatred we have seen people be killed because of revenge there has been much sorrow that has been culminated in sin but now we see that the lord experiences that sorrow the Bible says, look down at verse 6, that the Lord was deeply grieved. And so much so that he was so grieved that he regretted making mankind. Sin is so serious that God regrets his creation. But let me be very clear, church. God doesn't change his mind. God does not change. God does not waffle. God isn't flaky. A theologian, theologians call this the immutability of God. That he does not change. So, so what's happening here? Right? God's being described in human terms so that we can understand Him. So don't get caught up in understanding this from an emotional perspective, but see the seriousness of sin. Men and women are so desperately wicked that they grieve God's heart to the extent that rather than comforting them, He decides to destroy them. Notice what sin has pushed God to. The question for us is, do we see the gravity of our own sin this way? If God's heart is broken by our sin, do we actually feel the gravity of that sin? Do we see the danger of our sin? 
Do we understand the weight of our sin? Sin has been brought into the world and it brings death and destruction and corruption and nothing will stop it other than God. Idolatry, lust, murder, violence, everything is a byproduct of our sin. What has sin done to you? You can think of the relationships that you have that have been broken by sin. You can think of your, your bodies that have been broken by sin. You can think of your heart and your mind that have been corrupted by sin. Sin has done much to us. And if we don't come to that reality honestly, we begin to draw back. We begin to say, at statements, you are sinful at your very core. We begin to draw back. Well, it's not that bad. And that's when we are beginning to slip away from the reality of what's true. That we are sinful. And church, the only answer to unrepentant sin is the judgment of God. It's the only answer. And so God sees the wickedness of creation. And that wickedness earns God's judgment. But that's not God's final word. Which brings us to the second takeaway. God sets His grace on Noah. God's going to set His grace on Noah. Now, I want you to look at verse 8. And I know, it's, I know most, mostly in your Bibles, it's up in that first passage. But, but I want you to see the, the connection. I think it's a bridge verse to what's going on. And it helps us see what is actually happening in the chapter, what's most important. So look at verse 8. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. There's a lot packed into that one little verse. And what we see here is that grace produces righteousness. Grace produces righteousness. Look there at verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, underline those names and save those for later. We're going to come back to those in a couple weeks. But it's important for us to read verses 8, 9, and 10 together so that we see a fuller picture. It helps us situate God's grace and Noah's righteousness. First, Noah found favor with God. That is, God showed Noah grace. He found God's grace. Noah is the recipient of God's grace. What that means is that, that Noah did not earn God's grace. He was not righteous and therefore shown grace. No, he's shown grace and enabled to be righteous. Noah is not perfectly righteous. He's inherited sin, which we're going to see here in just a few weeks. Grace, even as far back in the book of Genesis chapter 6, is a gift that God gives to us. And Israel knew this. If you're Israel hearing this, you've been brought out of the land of Egypt, you're going to enter into the promised land, you know that it's only God's favor that you now are your own nation. You've now been freed from slavery, that you now are God's people. God has set His favor on Noah. In the same way that He set His favor on Israel, in the same way that God has set His favor on us in Christ. We did not earn God's grace. We can't. It has been given to us as a gift. But secondly, notice the description of Noah. In a sharp contrast to the corruption of his time, Noah is described in three particular ways. 
He has three specific characteristics. Look there. Noah was a righteous man. Meaning Noah had the right relationship with God, others, and creation. Noah was blameless among his contemporaries. He, he was not completely sinless, but he lived a life of integrity with a pure heart and that sought to have his deeds match his faith. We might say that integrity is the outworking, the public manifestation of one's faith. And then finally, Noah walked with God. We've heard that phrase before. Just last week, Pastor Ryan taught us, what, what does it look like for us to walk with God? The Enoch in chapter 5, he has a continual relationship with God, so much so that God takes him. God doesn't take Noah. But God speaks. He'll speak to Noah. And Noah has the same kind of relationship that Enoch had with God. God's grace truly enables righteousness. And now, just as Noah received this grace, so have we. The New Testament tells us that we have experienced God's grace. And the response to that is that we walk with Him. It's the same thing. Noah receives God's grace. Noah walks with God. We receive God's grace in Christ. Now we get to walk with God. It's the same thing. And so now we are called to have a relationship with God through His Spirit and through His church. That, that we are able to receive God's gift and to then live in light of that gift. This is what grace does. It enables us to live righteously. It enables us to live how God wants us to live. I know it may seem like that you feel like that you can't get anything right. That, there, that you can't beat that sin that's, that's coming at you all the time. But Paul says it. Should we sin so that grace may abound in Romans? He says, no. We should receive God's grace and walk in righteousness. You are enabled to walk righteously with God now if you've experienced the grace of God in Christ. So grace produces righteousness, but also grace provides separation. When God set His favor on Noah, God also provides separation. Look there at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt, there's that word again, in God's sight. And the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. See how extensive sin is. And we're going to see a call back to Genesis 1 and 2. Right in the beginning, what did God see? He saw that the earth was good. So much so that when it gets to humanity, it was very good. But now, it's corrupted by sin, where violence and injustice reign. And the world is not filled with worshipers of God. Humanity has not honored God as their creator king. Instead, God looks down at his creation and almost like a potter who's forming the vessel and it gets messed up. What does a potter normally do? He throws it out. He can't fix it. There's nothing to do but smash it. Is God going to smash his creation? What is he going to do? But once again, we see his grace. Look at verse 13. Then God said to Noah. God speaks to Noah. He doesn't have to. I've decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Noah is warned by God. 
He's warned, this is what I'm going to do to creation. It's clear from the biblical narrative, and it's clear that Noah understands God has passed judgment on sin. Now, warnings are great, right? You get the flashing uh, signs on the road. Hey, construction ahead. Great, fantastic. But what does that sign not do? It doesn't help me get through that traffic. It doesn't help me actually pass through. All it does is tell me what's going to happen. But God's not going to leave Noah stranded. Look at what God does. God warns Noah and God instructs Noah for that separation. Verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, but most biblical historians think this is some kind of pine or oak wood, so it's strong. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. This pitch is mostly like caulk. So we can put it together. Verse 15. This is how you are to make it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It's big. It can hold lots of, lots of animals and Noah's family. In verse 16, you are to make a roof, although this is probably uh, not a great thought, but it's, it helps us understand it's more like a hatch. So when Noah puts a hatch on the ark, he's able to lift it up and see out when the flood is going on. Finishing the side of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof, you are to put a door to the side of the ark. Make it with a lower, middle, and upper decks. Very detailed. But there's probably more details that we don't even have. Church, understand, when God gives Noah the instructions to make this ark, He's providing the protection that Noah needs. And in this case, for Noah's family. But this protection involves separation, removing the wicked from the righteous. Not only is this judgment for sin, it's also the continued blessing of God. For those who walk with Him will be able to keep His promises. God will keep His promises. God will provide a seed of the woman. A difficult question can be asked, why does God destroy everything? Is God mean? Is He angry? Is He hateful? Why does God destroy all of this? And although that's a fair question, the text gives us the answer. It's, it's, the, it's the same throughout the whole passage. The story's told us the whole time. Sin is that serious and that extensive that no being on earth was righteous. And in fact, are the exact opposite. They're corrupt and wicked. Romans 1 tells us that no one was, is without excuse. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God is going to take care of evil and wickedness, that means God has to take care of everything. It's the same goes for today. Why doesn't God take all the evil out of the world? Well, here's the problem with that. One, when when does God do that? And two, if He does that, that means He's taking you with Him. And so in God's grace, we see Him provide separation between the wicked and the righteous. Now think, though, about these instructions that, Mo, that, that Moses here writes down and Noah has. Think about them. But it's obvious that God sent in a flood. We know the story. Noah's building an ark. But it's an interesting note that this word for ark is the same word that is used to describe the basket that, that Moses has put in when he drifts down the Nile. It's the same, it's the same word. It can be really big or really small. So what do those two arcs arcs have in common? Neither of them could steer one another. They couldn't steer. 
There was no steering mechanism. There's, there's no rudders on these things. God is the only one that's steering them. God is the only one that's protecting them. God is the only one who can provide salvation. Whether it was from the flood for Noah or was the, the crocodiles in the Nile. Either way, God was the one protecting these two vessels and the people inside of them. God was the only one who could save them and steer them to where they needed to go. God's grace provides separation for the righteous from the wicked. So God, He sets His grace on to Noah, His favor on to him. And that grace promises life. Look there at verse 17. I just want to make, God wants to make sure He's clear. Understand that I am bringing a flood... Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creation under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. God's going to destroy every part of his creation. He's going to undo what he's done. Nothing outside of God's plan will survive. Now look back at verse 18. Look down, look down there at verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons your wife and your wife's and your son's wives. In contrast to destroying all of creation, God is going to make a covenant with Noah. And it's the first time we come across that word here in the Old Testament. It's going to be important as we continue. A covenant is a contract. A covenant is a promise between two parties. It must be held up. And so God says, I'm going to establish this covenant with you. This, this covenant may actually be the continuation of Genesis chapter 3. The promise that God made to Adam and Eve that the serpent will be destroyed by the seed of the woman. So only Noah, his sons, and their wives will be saved from this devastating flood. They were the only people allowed into the ark. It is with Noah that God establishes this covenant, this special relationship, a covenant that blesses Noah with grace, so that they may live. God's grace promises life. And the ark now will function as a rescue capsule. And once again, God provides Noah with instructions. Right? God's covenant includes instructions. It isn't that God says, I'm going to do this. You don't have to do anything. No. God's covenant comes with instructions. Right? Those instructions now lead Noah to life. Look at verse 19. You're also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything from the birds according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds will come to you so that they will be kept alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And so God gives instructions. His covenant comes with instructions that we must obey. So what's Noah going to do? God sets His grace on Noah. And that grace propels faithful obedience. Look there at verse 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. What a simple phrase. And Noah did this. And all that God was going to do 
to his creation, all the destruction that would come upon the earth, Noah responds with simple and silent obedience. In fact, it's the only, it's the only action, it's the only thing that Noah does in this whole chapter. He silently listens to God, and he silently obeys God. Noah didn't need anything else. He needed, he needed God's instructions for life, and he follows those instructions. Noah's actions line up with his description in verse 9. His righteousness and integrity are demonstrated by his obedience to God's word. This is the powerful work of grace in our lives that we can hear God's word and then respond to him by living faithfully, by obeying faithfully. That's the power of God's grace. Yeah, it's true that Noah was more righteous than anyone around him, but it's also true that God's grace, the gift that Noah received, it is God's grace and Noah's faith that strike this covenant together. God initiates and Noah responds. It wasn't that Noah earned God's grace through righteous behavior. Instead, it was a gift of grace that enabled that righteousness through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us this. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is, it is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. God's economy, the way God does things is the same. It doesn't change. And so God shows Noah grace. He shows him favor. And Noah is enabled to live. But see Noah's obedience as faith. Right? Hebrews 11.7 tells us this. By faith, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, he built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he even condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah trusts God and has faith in what he will do and what he has said. He has faith that God has passed judgment on the world. But he has also offered a way of salvation. Noah's faith proved his actions. Just as James chapter 2 tells us. That James says, faith without work is dead. Not that that work saved you. Not that not that, that that work is what, what provides your faith. No, faith, true faith, real lasting faith works. And it, it produces righteousness in our lives. Church, obedience is the response of all who have experienced God's grace through faith. It is this faith, not in ourselves, but in God's promises that enable us to obey. It is not that we go out and earn God's love. We can't do it. The only thing that we can earn is God's judgment. But God's grace enables righteousness. Church, today we've seen God pass judgment on sin. God sees the wickedness of His creation and therefore He limits and laments the spread of sin. But God also set his grace on Noah. And it is that grace which produces righteousness. It provides separation from wickedness. It promises life to those who follow it. And it propels faithful obedience. Wickedness earns God's judgment. But God's grace enables righteousness. Now, throughout the whole Bible, we see God judge. He is a good judge. We see God place judgment for sin. 
from Babel to Sodom to Nineveh, even Israel. God declares His judgment on sin. But finally, we see God's judgment of human sin at Calvary. You see, God's response to sin hasn't changed since Genesis chapter 6. God's wrath must be poured out on sin. And as I told you, our God is a gracious God. The same gracious God in Genesis chapter 6 is the same God at Calvary. Because in Christ, that is where God's wrath and God's grace collide. That the blood of this covenant is poured out for many and all who will receive it in faith. All who will receive grace and forgiveness of our sins. God is not different. He has not changed. And at the cross, Jesus was beat. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was hung on a cross to bleed to death. And in that moment, Jesus hangs on the cross. He pays for our sin once and for all through His death. God's judgment on sin. Jesus experiences God's judgment for us. But in God's grace, Jesus is vindicated. He is raised to new life to demonstrate that He was perfect. He was the righteous one. He was the one who lived the life of obedience that we couldn't live. Jesus is raised to new life. And now that life is offered to us. Christ gives His life for us and we can receive His life. If you are not a follower of Christ today, will you receive God's grace through Christ? Will you submit your life to Him? Will you lay down your aspirations and dreams? Will you lay at His feet and receive His gift of grace? Will you trust Him more than yourself? More than this world? More than anything that you can place your hands on? Will you receive grace through faith today? If you're a disciple... Someone who has experienced this grace, will you now walk in faithful obedience like Noah? Will you trust God? Even as Hebrews said, we can't even see it. But will you trust Him in faith and walk in obedience? Pray with me. God, what a somber story of your judgment. What a, a picture of how wicked the world can be. God, I pray that we would see the seriousness of our sin as we prayed this morning. I pray that we will be a people who proclaim the grace that we've received and live that way. God, if there is someone in the room today that has not submitted their life to you in faith, I pray that you would not let them leave. Would you... Would your spirit be so overwhelming that they sit and submit their life to you? I pray for our church family. As people who have experienced your grace in Christ, may we now walk in faithful obedience. May we now live the way that Christ lived. 
May we now demonstrate how powerful your grace really is. God, we need you to work in us and through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.